different words or phrases that Jesus spoke as he was dying. And it's been a tradition of many parts of the church for many years to hear sermons on these last seven words during a three-hour service that is usually held in the afternoon from noontime until three o'clock commemorating the hours that Jesus hung on the cross. Tonight we will have an abbreviated version of that service and of course we do it in the evening. After I preach the first word, six people from this church will preach the other words. We'll get the professional preacher out of the way and then hear the real <laughs> preachers. And their sermons, though very brief, will reflect how they encounter Jesus on the cross in these words. I'm grateful for the willingness to do this and the time and the prayer and the energy that they've given uh, to be a part of this tonight. They do it for the Lord and they do it for all of us. There is no other day like today. There never has been a day like Good Friday in the history of the world, and there never will be again. Millions of people have died heroic deaths, but there is only one death of which it can be said it was for the salvation of the world and our reconciliation to God. So let's quiet our hearts and let's go to Calvary. And let's fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and let's open our ears to hear a word from him tonight and let's open our hearts and let's stand under the cross together, the cross of our crucified Lord. Will you stand? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we enter your presence tonight in awe and in adoration. You could have saved your life, but you didn't. Instead, you gave your life, refusing to betray the purpose for which you had been born. You would come into the world with love, and when that, world, when that love required you to shoulder a cross, you summoned the strength to bear it and to die. So tonight, Lord Jesus, as we look at that cross, teach us its meaning once again and help us to take up our cross and follow you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is 
Luke chapter 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The first word from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Did we miss something? Did someone in this brutal and ugly scene ask for forgiveness? No one said, you know, I'm really sorry about this whole thing. There was no confession beforehand. There was no acknowledgement of wrongdoing. No one showed any remorse. Yet Jesus, right up front, speaks forgiveness. This is called preemptive forgiveness. Will Willimon, a preacher and was dean of the chapel at Duke University for many years, said, if God is going to wait until we know the wrong we do, God will wait forever. If you're waiting for me to know, to admit, to confess my complicity, my sin, you will wait in eternity. If God's going to wait to talk with me until I first admit that I'm a sinner, the conversation will never occur. I'll be too defensive, too deceitful in my guilt. I'd rather die. How much do we not own? Jesus forgives his killers, his mockers, How is it that Jesus is pleading for such evil, violent people? I can't remember the last good prayer I said for someone who really, really hurt me. What kind of heart is this that forgives such brutality and injustice when it isn't even asked for? Jesus prays for the Father to forgive them. And I take them to mean all those who participated in this ugly act. The soldiers, Pilate, the chief priests, the scribes, the mockers who came to watch and be entertained by the whole thing, even the disciples. Jesus even gives a rationale for why he prays what he does. They don't know what they are doing. Really? They didn't know. Maybe it was that they didn't know they were crucifying God's son. They didn't know the extent of the act. I'll bet I've done things to others and didn't even know the extent to which I was hurting them. It's a pretty bold, mind-blowing, and maybe even absurd prayer, this prayer from the cross. 
The love of Christ envelops all those responsible for his death in prayer, a prayer of forgiveness. Jesus taught forgiveness. He ministered forgiveness throughout his life. He told his followers to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. In the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He told parables about forgiveness and about forgiving 70 times seven. He forgave a prostitute who got close to him at a dinner party. And when he shared the cup in the upper room with his disciples, he said that cup was for the forgiveness of sins. And now he prays forgiveness, even as he dies. In Hebrews, we're told that Jesus always lives to make intercession on our behalf. In Romans, it says, who is in a position to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is still praying. He's praying for us. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't declare forgiveness himself. Rather, he asked the Father to forgive. Remember, the Father was at the cross, too. Jesus had forgiven others, but for reasons I'm not sure I can locate or even explain, he turns this over to the Father. I do know this. It must mean that the Father is willing to forgive. Apparently, he can forgive a lot. We call this Good Friday because of this. It's good news that this kind of evil can be forgiven. It's good news that there is such mercy. It's good news that the Father will forgive even you and me. Good and gracious God, we are amazed at the forgiveness of your dying son Keep praying for us, Jesus. Forgive us. And give us the courage, the mercy, the deep, deep Jesus-driven love to forgive others. It is so hard. So help us. Amen.
in Luke 23, 39 through 43. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know a whole lot about these two men. Uh, they're described as criminals, robbers. Uh, the second criminal even admits we're being punished justly for what our deeds deserve. But we aren't told of their crimes. All we know is that society has cast judgment and these two men are being crucified. If we focus on who we think deserves what, I think we're gonna miss the true meaning of this passage. Both men are actually asking for life. Both of them cry out to Jesus to save them. However, the condition of their hearts is radically different. The first criminal mocks Christ and says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. In his final hours, this man is asking for his physical life. He doesn't care who saves him. He doesn't care how he's saved. He just knows he wants to live. There is no account of Jesus responding to this man. He's silent. The second man has a different realization. He sees that Christ is truly the Messiah, and he has the fear of God in his heart, and he confesses that he is a sinner. He understands that Christ is innocent and that he came to offer us more than just our physical life. He cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Isn't that our greatest fear, to be forgotten? I grew up in a really big family. I have lots of siblings. And uh, when we were all younger, my mom took us, all four of us, to a pizza hut. And uh, we ate dinner, and uh, my mom went and paid the bill, and we were responsible for, for getting everyone in the car, and we piled in and drove off. And then my mom starts to panic, and she looks in the rearview mirror and notices that our baby sister, who's nine months old, is not in her car seat. Uh, we all thought it was funny um, to not tell her that, that she had left her nine-month-old at Pizza Hut, um, that she had forgotten one of us. All the parents are like, older siblings are just terrible. <laughs> all over scripture, there's this plea for God to remember us. In Psalm 25, 7, it says, Do not remember the sins of my youth in my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me. For you, Lord, are good. In Jeremiah 15, 15, it says, Lord, you understand. Remember me and care for me. In a commentary on the book of Jeremiah by J.A. Thompson, he says that the Israelite remembering is not mere recollection. It was a recapturing of the past in a way that led to action in the present. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
these men are being crucified. They're going to die, and Christ is going to die alongside them. But even in death, Jesus offers us life. He responds to the second man by saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus emphasizes the today. He doesn't say tomorrow, after you've been baptized, after you've lived a good life and you've followed me. No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. No longer is paradise some far-off place reserved for the elite, for the circumcised, for the holy. But it's a place for the broken, for the sinner, and for the criminal. Jesus came for the outcast. He came for the Gentile. And he comes for us. Before Jesus, no one was walking around telling criminals uh, that they too were going to inherit the kingdom of God. This man didn't have time to turn his life around and follow Christ. He couldn't hop down real quick and go get baptized. But in his final hours, he cries out for Christ and Christ saves him. If there is any story in the Bible that teaches us our salvation is by grace alone through faith, and it is not by works. It's this story. In the seven last words of Christ, two of them deal specifically with forgiveness. And this is one of them. God knows us really well, doesn't he? He knows how hard it is for us to forgive others who have wronged us. And even more, he knows how hard it is for us to forgive ourselves. He sees that we struggle to understand that how God could possibly forgive us because we have wronged him so many times. Christ came to offer us more than just our physical life. We get to live into this new reality that we serve a living God and that he's come for us and offers us not only life to the full, uh, but an eternity spent with him in paradise. For the perishable must clothe itself in the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Where, O oh death, is your where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? I want to leave you with a question. And the question is not whether you're a criminal or a thief. The question is, which criminal are you? Every single one of us is going to encounter Jesus, whether it be here tonight, tomorrow, or in our final breaths. And just like these criminals, we're going to have to choose how we respond. We can respond like the man on the left, who chose to reject Jesus with the words that came out of his mouth and rejected him with how he lived. Or we can respond like the man on the right and throw ourselves upon the mercy and forgiveness that Christ offers. If there is breath in your lungs, in life, in your body, you can cry out to Jesus. For the wages of sin is death. And even though we stand convicted, Christ gives us this promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. God, we know we stand convicted. We know we don't have it all together. 
You are broken and lost, but the grace and forgiveness you offer us is big and scandalous. You sent your own son to die a horrific death in order to offer us a life spent with you in paradise. God, help us accept your forgiveness. Help us live into the life you have for us. We don't always have, a, have the right words, and sometimes all we can ask is for you to remember us. The world can be a dark place, and we know we need a savior. God, thank you for coming us, coming for us, and for sending your son.
Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabakthani, which meant, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and ordered it and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Five minutes, years worth of scholars and ordained academians arguing over what Jesus' words meant. A 34-year-old man who sometimes is too tired to get out of bed for Thursday morning Bible study. Sounds like a perfect combination for a meaningful micro-sermon. Let's go. God, have mercy and patience on me. Allow your imperfect and oftentimes broken tool to find use this evening. Jesus' cry out to God after spending hours on the cross is something I think many Christians struggle with. Was Jesus genuinely questioning why God had left him at his time of need? Were these the meanderings of a mind broken from pain, dehydration, and stress? Was he going through the seven stages of grief? Was this actually a bold and defiant cry against death itself? Was he quoting Psalm 2 in reference to himself as the man in the psalm? I don't know. To be honest, we could spend the next five minutes coming up with thesis titles and projects that wannabe scholars could spend years arguing over. I've tried to find focus in the words of the brilliant and talented funeral director, and coincidentally, my older sister, Becky Brozick. Death makes people do crazy things. You see, Becky wasn't just talking about the dying, she was talking about those that experience death in a family or otherwise. Let's be honest here, how many Bible studies are out there that study the meaning of the cross or the last words of Jesus or the power of the cross? Most of us understand, at least on a basic level, what the death of Jesus means. The forgiveness of sin, the allowance of the opportunity to become an adopted son or daughter of God, or more simply, freedom. So when we think about Jesus, our Savior, Hero, and Messiah, it is hard to even think about the possibility of him breaking on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where do you put the emphasis on those words? Anyhow, it is easy to get into the mindset of we must dig deep and find meaning and power in his words and why Jesus never actually showed a hint of weakness but was saying something bold, meaningful, and inspired. This is tough for me. I don't know what it is like being God. I can't even begin to understand what it would feel like to carry the sins of my own life, let alone the whole world. But I do have a pretty good idea of what it means to be human, and thus maybe a small fraction of what he went through. I know frustration, I know pain, I know disappointment, and I know defeat. What do we know about Jesus? He's one-third of the triune. He's the only son of God, and he was God-wrapped in human flesh. Human, I think. It is easy to forget that sometimes. 
That means he had the same dopamine receptors we have. He had the same physical senses that we have. Touch, taste, smell. He could have only run on adrenaline for so long and his flesh was not immortal. However, he was also the son of God, capable of calling down a fleet of angels if he requested, bringing the dead back to life and imbuing others with divine healing capabilities. That being said, we get a glimpse of a very human Jesus on the cross. He knew what was in store for himself. We often talk about how the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus. But have you ever wondered at what moment Jesus took on the sins of the world to bear as his own? Was it all at once? Was it funneled into him over time? How deeply do we hurt when we have just one sin we are cognizant of that we haven't brought to God? How much does it hurt when a friend wrongs us, let alone being abandoned by virtually everyone even? What about the humiliation of an insult of a stranger, stranger versus the floggings and an abuse of an entire mob? Have you ever been told a known murderer was of more value than you? There is no Vicodin, no morphine to dull the pain, no induced coma to make the passing of his final hours more bearable. Just a man, and I want to repeat that, a man devastated in ways I can't imagine or comprehend, and now completely cut off from the Father, while bearing the sins of all of mankind. Brokenness doesn't seem like much of a stretch to me. Many of us can't imagine what our life would be like without the presence of God, so how hard do you think it would be to bear all sin, beaten, abused, broken, abandoned, and left to die an agonizing death, and all while simply being human? What would you call out after having to endure this for hours? Relief? Comfort? Death? Jesus turned to God in all of his anguish. Whether you view this as Jesus turning to God in brokenness to ask a question, or that he turned to what he knew, that is scripture, to endure, is nothing, nothing less than astounding when you remember that Jesus was human. To have that kind of focus in the face of absolute misery and impending destruction and still turn to the Father, I don't have a brilliant closure to this short series of ramblings and thoughts over a very confrontational piece of scripture. Perhaps Jesus's words are simply just a quote of scripture or a shout of defiance or something else entirely. Regardless, Jesus, wow. How did you not break harder? How did you endure? How did you turn toward God and not ask for the relief after all of this human suffering. Jesus, I am in awe, and as a simple human being, I thank you for carrying an impossible burden. God, as we move on to another very human response, thirst, help us appreciate, understand, and be awed.
A reading from John 19. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Since my childhood, this moment of the crucifixion has been the most sad, callous part of Jesus' tortuous death. As a child, the procedures of Roman crucifixion seemed so horrific, I could not wrap my head around them. But to not even show the mercy of a cool drink of water to a suffering man and to offer him the bitterness of vinegar instead has always been a cruelty I could not imagine. I could relate to thirst when I was seven. Here I am, 2,000 years later, far from that traumatic day, still wishing I could offer a simple cup of water to Jesus. A drink, such an easy mercy to a thirst. This yearning to quench Jesus' thirst. has found a little bit of peace in action through the teachings of a simple woman in India. Mother Teresa of Calcutta found a way to quench the thirst of dying Jesus by seeing him, his face, in the faces of people who she was helping. The discovery of her work and her response to I thirst has given me a way to offer water to our Lord. This exhausted world is thirsty in so many ways. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. So, there is the invitation. There is the link in our time between Jesus' suffering and thirst long ago and our ability to quench it now. We can ease the suffering of someone and offer it up to Jesus. In the early 1990s, I was in Agra, India, and had the opportunity to go to a house of the dying and orphanage in Mother Teresa's chain of missions. And right by the crucifix in their chapel was posted a tiny torn piece of lined paper ripped out of a notebook by Mother Teresa that said in her handwriting, I thirst. I'll never forget it. Mother taught her sisters that when they served the needy, they were responding directly to Jesus' own words. She said, let them look up and only see Jesus. In this thirsty world, there is loneliness, grief, hunger, illness, homelessness, neglect, the thirst of the abused earth itself, of its creatures. There is fear, the thirst for peace. There is no shortage of needs to serve. 
I came out of that experience in Agra so inspired. I wanted to return there and volunteer to help those sisters. And people of many faiths were arriving from all over the world at that time with the same inspiration. It created new problems for the sisters and their simple way of life and their focus. Finally, Mother told her community to tell volunteers, quote, don't come to Calcutta. Calcutta is all around you, wherever you live, unquote. She went on to urge people in the Western world to leave our houses, the little boxes, our safe places, and find the poor, the abused, the lonely, the heartbroken, the ill. They are everywhere. She said, quote, the greatest poverty in the West is loneliness. Serve Jesus where you are, unquote. So if you are like me and finding our times overwhelming, you feel tiny, inadequate to make a difference, and the news reports have you near burnout, think of this wisdom of Mother Teresa. She said, quote, if you cannot feed 100, feed one, unquote. So keep enough energy to pass your tired neighbor a simple cup of the refreshing water of your love and time. They might just look over and for a split second see only the face of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for thirsting for us so much. You sent us Jesus to quench that thirst on the cross. Please help us to be like streams of water in the desert, like cups of cool water. Help us quench in Jesus' name. Amen.
We continue in John chapter 19 for the sixth word, verses 29 through 30. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The expression, it is finished, can have different interpretations. As I was pondering the sixth word of Christ, I recalled the ending of the book, The Once and Future King. This book was the basis for the Broadway musical Camelot. King Arthur is devastated. His round table has been destroyed. His knights have been slaughtered. Mordred is directing cannon fire at his forces. Arthur is reevaluating all the principles on which he has based his kingdom. One can easily imagine his saying, All I have striven to accomplish lies in ruins. Camelot is no more. All hope is gone. It is finished. In this case, it is finished is a cry of anguish. Arthur's mission has ended in failure. And there are some who interpret Jesus' sixth word as a cry of anguish, as the supposed failure to complete his task. One example is Sung Myung Moon, the founder of the Unification Church. He taught his followers that Jesus failed and that it lay to Moon to complete that mission. Another possible understanding of it is finished is as a cry of relief. Suffering is ending. Another Broadway musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, captured this sense. In the song Gethsemane, I only want to say, occur the lyrics. I have changed. I'm not as sure as when we started. Then I was inspired. Now I'm sad and tired. Listen, surely I've exceeded expectations. Tried for three years. Seems like 30. Could you ask as much from any other man? And then the song concludes, God, thy will is hard, but you hold every card. I will drink your cup of poison. Nail me to your cross and break me. Bleed me, beat me, kill me, take me now before I change my mind. This conveys an attitude that it is finished, is spoken as a relief. In the musical, Jesus is depicted as tired of the struggle, looking forward only to its end. It is finished, I am done with suffering. But we would do well to recall that this musical was not written by someone with a Christian understanding of Jesus. A third way to understand it is finished, is as a shout of victory. And I contend that this is the proper interpretation. Jesus has accomplished what he set out to do, and it is tremendous. And we are the beneficiaries of that victory. We have a strong clue that it was not a cry to spare. Jesus was reported to have shouted from the cross just before his death. Luke describes him as calling out with a loud voice, 
before he died. Jesus knew how to address large crowds, and in a similar way, he makes himself heard proclaiming. It is finished. What exactly was finished? It is finished proclaims that all the work the Father had sent for him to accomplish was now complete, particularly his work for bearing the penalty for our sins. This means there was no more penalty left to be paid for sins. When he was done, it was done. Hear what Hebrews 9 says. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear in a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus made clear that the Old Testament pointed to this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In Acts 13, Paul speaks of Jesus' accomplishment. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. What is finished is the payment for our sin. His death pays that price. We are the beneficiaries. Praise be to God. Praise be to God for this wonderful gift. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for paying the price, completing your sacrifice on our behalf. Keep us ever mindful of your great gift and your great triumph completed on the cross. Cause us to be ever grateful for your gift. Amen. seventh and final words of Jesus from the cross from Luke 23:46 Jesus called out with a loud voice Father into your hands I commit my spirit when he said this he breathed his last Jesus is quoting Psalm 31:5 that says 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. And this is actually a prayer that every Jewish child was taught and recited as part of their bedtime prayers. In the Jewish evening prayers, the people entrusted their spirit to the Almighty for safekeeping. And in the morning, they begin with what's called the Moda Ani, I thank prayer, which expresses gratitude towards God for the return of one's soul to him or her. So it's not too surprising that Jesus would recite this prayer that would have been so familiar to him throughout his life as he faced the greatest challenge in the end of his incarnate life. It would also have been familiar to the Jewish listeners. This verse says that Jesus committed his spirit to the Father. The Hebrew word for commit is afkid, and the meaning is a little closer to our word for deposit, implying there's a future reclaiming of the thing you deposited. We deposit our money in the bank and have an intention of using it, even though we might have a, not have a clear intent of how we will use it. However, to the Hebrew, praying to commit his spirit into the hands of God in the evening, he had a definite intention of receiving it back in the morning. What Jesus was declaring when he cried out this phrase from the cross was that he would surely get his spirit back at the resurrection. There is life after death. Jesus was asserting that he entrusts his life to God even in death. God is sovereign over death, and we can trust him with our life after we die. Our lives will be in the best of all hands when they're in the hands of God. As I think about this passage and what it means to me now, I think this is a great prayer, not only every night, but every morning. Into your hands I commit my spirit. What is our spirit? The spirit is that part of us that is God-breathed. In Genesis, God breathed life into us. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Our spirit, our breath, and our life come from God. And he has breathed part of his very essence into us. He is in us, just as in Christ we are in him. Our spirit is that part of us that communes with God. So to pray into your hands to commit my spirit is to say, I'm listening to you. And I want to be controlled by you, God. I want to surrender my life and my way to you today. And it is a challenge to surrender our lives fully into God's hand because, let's face it, we like to be in control. There are times I know what I want and I know how to get it. I know what I feel comfortable with and I know how to make a plan that best suits me. I will even sometimes assert that I know what's best for you. And we often define ourselves by what we do and how well we've planned. Sometimes we even think that God saves us because of what we do. There is pride in this. There is foolishness in not seeking his will in all things. And I'm all too often aware how much time and energy I could have saved and how much good would have come had I just sought God's way from the beginning. There's something in me that needs to die. To surrender to the Lord is to make the mighty I, the stiff-necked, proud, self-righteous, I deserve more, this is my right to bend to Christ and his will. 
if my envious, worried, resentful, critical, and judgmental, self-conscious I would just bend and bow more quickly. Not I, but Christ. In other words, dying to self and self-attitudes. Phil has been preaching about these things through the season of Lent, and we have meditated on giving up things like fear and anger and criticism. As long as self is in control, we don't bear much fruit of the Spirit. And if we're willing to look honestly at our lives and see how much of this self there really is in each of us, we can bring this sin to the cross, assured that Christ went through all of this for each one of us. There is forgiveness at the cross. There is restoration of relationship with a holy God. There is resurrection. There is healing and new birth because of the cross. To surrender and commit our way to God is to give up the hard, stiff-necked eye and bend to make the choice to submit to the way of Christ, to be soft-hearted, humble, and teachable. Finally, this scripture passage says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He was not exhausted. He was not giving up, as we think of it. Rather, he made a choice. He knew this was the exact moment for prophecy to be fulfilled. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is triumph and victory in these words. Jesus did not come to live for himself, and he certainly did not die for himself. He did it for us. He did it for you, and he did it for me. And when he said this, he breathed his last.
Lord God, keep us near the cross. Keep our hearts near you. Now we wait for the third day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.